Uh, why don't you open up your Bibles again to 1 Samuel 8, uh, and let's ask the Lord for his help. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us this evening. As we come to your word now, would you help us come with hearts that are, are ready to listen, ready to be changed by what you have to say to us. Lord, would you help me as I preach? Lord, I thank you that um, your power is made perfect in weakness. Lord, I ask for your strength, for your grace. Lord, would you help me to represent you faithfully? And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you ever find it difficult to believe that God's way is best? I'm sure if we're honest with ourselves, we would all say there have been times in our lives uh, where we've struggled to do what we know God wants. We find it much easier to go with what looks good to us, don't we? What we feel like we need to do in the moment. Especially if following God's way means we have to stand out from the crowd. Let me ask you another question. Has there ever been a time in your life when a Christian brother or sister has bravely come to you to point out something like that out to you? Maybe they took you for a coffee, they sat you down, and they told you the ugly truth. They pointed out a blind spot they've seen in your Christian walk. They raised some concerns with you because they've noticed that some part of your lifestyle is inconsistent with following Jesus. They came to you because they love you, because they genuinely care about your faith. What they said stung a little bit, but you knew they were right, and you were able to confess that sin and pray together for God's help. Now, whether you've had that kind of experience or not, this chapter in the Bible we're going to look at tonight is going to give us those kind of vibes. God has some ugly truths to reveal to us about our hearts. And he lovingly calls us to repent and to keep putting our trust in King Jesus. That's what we're going to see as we look at how Israel act in 1 Samuel chapter 8. In this passage, Israel are finding it difficult to believe that God's way is best. And so God graciously comes to them with a warning to keep trusting in him alone. Now, if we're going to understand this chapter rightly, we need to remember what we've looked at in 1 Samuel so far. And really, what we've seen so far in the book has shown us that Israel really doesn't need a king. God has proved that home or away, any time, any place, he is more than capable of delivering Israel from their enemies. When the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and placed it in Dagon's temple, the next day they found the statue of Dagon lying face down before the Ark. The day after that, they found Dagon on the ground again, but this time with his head and his hands cut off. In fact, everywhere the Philistines tried to put the Ark, it caused so much devastation that it got to the point where they had enough and had to send it back. And last week in chapter 7, when Israel returned to the Lord and cried out to him to save them from the Philistines, God thundered against the Philistines in battle, throwing them into a panic, and they were completely routed before the Israelites. And what Samuel said when he set up the stone named Ebenezer sums it up perfectly. 
Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Following God's way has been going pretty well. Israel doesn't need a king. But when we come to the start of chapter 8, after years and years of peace and security under Samuel's leadership, we find Israel in a bit of a leadership crisis. We see in verse 1 that Samuel is now old. He's coming to the end of his life. And more than that, he's placed his sons Joel and Abijah in leadership positions over Israel. Remember Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, from the start of the book? Well, ironically, Joel and Abijah have been reading their leadership manual. Just like Eli's sons, Samuel's sons are corrupt and selfish. Verse 2 tells us they've turned aside after dishonest gain. They've accepted bribes and perverted justice. And this is a problem. Because the hostile nations surrounding Israel haven't gone away. And we know that because uh, later in the book, in chapter 12, verse 12, Samuel looks back at this moment in his farewell speech. And he mentions that the circumstances that prompt this request for a king is that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, is moving against Israel. Just like Putin is doing at the Ukrainian border right now, the Ammonites are maneuvering their troops to Israel's borders. So Israel's national security is under threat at a time when it seems they have no capable leaders to mount a defense. The peace and security that Israel have enjoyed for years begins to look very fragile. The elders of Israel look at Joel and Abijah and they bring a vote of no confidence. But rather than continue to trust that God will protect them, rather than remember that thus far the Lord has helped them, they offer an, an alternative solution. They want to do what seems best, what seems most reasonable and effective to them. They want a king. And we can see that in verse 4 and 5. Look with me. The elders gather together and come to Samuel at Ramah, and they say to him, you are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. It may not feel like it, but this is a massive moment in Israel's history as a nation. This is the moment where Israel's transition from being a confederation of tribes led by judges who are raised up by God as and when required to a nation that is led by a king begins. But as we'll see as we walk through the rest of this chapter, God doesn't think that this is a good idea. And we're going to unpack this passage under one main heading. God graciously warns his people not to reject him as king. God graciously warns his people not to reject him as king. The bulk of what we read in 1 Samuel 8 is God warning the people that establishing a monarchy is a very bad idea. Now you might be asking the question, why is having a king such a bad thing? especially if you've read Deuteronomy 17, which seems to permit Israel to have a king and provides a number of laws that the king must follow. What's the problem? Why is this such a bad idea? Well, the problem is not so much having a king. The problem 
is their desires that lie behind wanting a king. We get God's assessment of this request in verses 7 to 8 when he responds to Samuel's prayer. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I have brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. God is saying to Samuel that this request for a king is the same old idolatry with a fresh twist. Instead of trusting God to get them through this latest threat to national security, they go back to their old habit of replacing God with an idol. And this time, they want to substitute God out for a man-made solution. They want to put their trust in a king, a king who's going to raise up a permanent army to deal with all these threats, a king who they hope will act as a visible deterrent to all these hostile nations who constantly want a piece of them. And if you look again at verse 5, we can see the heart that lies behind this request for a king even more clearly. They say, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. They want to be like all the other nations, which is tragic on two levels. First of all, Israel were not supposed to be like all the other nations. At Sinai in Exodus 19, God said, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. God said, you will be for me a holy nation. So what made Israel Israel is that they were unique out of all the nations of the earth. They were chosen by God to be his special people. And secondly, the laws in Deuteronomy 17 were given to make sure that any king that Israel had was not like the other kings. He wasn't allowed to raise up a standing army. He wasn't allowed to raise large amounts of cash. So even if they do get a king, depending on how godly he is, they still might not get one like all the other nations. But what makes their idolatry even more tragic is what God says is going to happen if they get their way. Even while they are openly rejecting God's authority, God lovingly tries to change their minds. He graciously warns them that this idolatry will lead them back into slavery. In verse 9, God tells Samuel to warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And what follows in verse 10 to 18 is Samuel taking this warning to the people so that they know what will happen if they get their way. Now, there's three ideas repeated over and over in Samuel's warning. Take, best, and serve. And as well as that, in almost every verse, he speaks of what is yours becoming his. If they make a human being king, all he's going to do is take, take, take. So Samuel tells the people, think of your sons and daughters. They will be taken into the king's service. Your sons will serve with the chariots and horses. Some will lead men into battle. If they're not fighting, they will be made to work in the field or make weapons. Your daughters will be taken to serve as perfumers and cooks and bakers. He says, think of your property. Kings aren't interested 
in the worst stuff. They want the best. He will take the best of your fields, vineyards, olive groves, and give them to his attendants. He will take the best of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. And to top it all off, he says, you yourselves will become his slaves. Idolatry always leads to slavery. But if you look with me to verse 18, the most tragic thing about their idolatrous desire for a king is not just that it will lead them to slavery, but that when they cry out for relief from the king, God says that he will no longer answer them. If they do this, they are walking away from God. They are forfeiting their special relationship with God. It will be too little, too late. What are the people going to do? Are they going to listen to this gracious warning God has given them through Samuel? Well, let's read verse 19 and 20 again. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Like a bunch of toddlers, they're determined to get their way, even though they've been told it's wrong and there will be consequences. And then we get something of a surprise. After the people refuse to listen to God and demand a king, God says yes. God gives them exactly what they want. He allows them to reject him. He says to Samuel in verse 22, listen to them and give them a king. And the big question we're left with at the end of this passage is why? If this is such a bad idea, why does God allow this to happen? Well, sometimes God gives his people over to their desires as an act of judgment. God has no interest in robotic forced love or allegiance. He won't micromanage our choices or click his fingers to make us love and obey him. He wants us to genuinely love him with all our hearts and to have no gods before him. And so sometimes he allows his people to experience the consequences of their choices so that they'll snap out of their idolatry and repent so that they'll come back to him for mercy. It's not as if God hasn't warned them. He graciously warned them that what rejecting him as their king would mean, and they still chose to do it. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time tonight thinking about how this passage applies to us. And as we do, I want to make four points of application. Don't panic, they're short points. First of all, in this passage, we're going to see three ugly truths about the human heart. Three ugly truths about the human heart. Before we brush this warning off and say, silly Israel, back at it again with the same old idolatry, we need to see that when we're reading this passage, we're really looking into the mirror. It shows us the ugly truth about ourselves. Our idols might not be kings or leaders. You may not trust Nicholas Sturgeon or Boris Johnson more than God, and I'd like to hope not. 
But we do all have a tendency to act like the people of Israel act in this passage. And the warning for us is that when we think that our way is best, when our hearts respond in each of these three ways we're about to see, what we're really doing is rejecting God as our king. We're not giving him the place in our lives that he deserves, and we're allowing ourselves to be enslaved by idols. Okay, so here's the first ugly truth. Just like Israel wanted a king to fight their battles, we want to substitute God out for idols that we can see. We want to substitute God out for idols we can see. Having a king wasn't the issue. The issue was that Israel wanted to put their trust in a king. Just like they wanted to bring the ark into battle, they wanted a king to lead them into battle. Something tangible. They want to live by sight, not by faith. And by nature, we're exactly the same. Often circumstances come into our lives that we don't like and we want God to change. And rather than trusting God, we try to dictate to God how he is going to deliver us from them. And rather than trusting that he has ordained every day of our lives and that he knows our every need before we even ask, we come to him thinking we already know what the solution needs to be. And that could literally be anything, depending on the situation. It could be a job, it could be a relationship, it could be test results. Whatever it might be for you, we need to be careful that the things we pray for don't become idols. We need to be careful that we don't try to replace God with functional saviors that we can see here and now. That we don't look to things that God has made, things that might be good in and of themselves, and ask them to provide us with some kind of security that only God can truly provide. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't talk to God about our circumstances. It doesn't mean we don't ask God to do things, but it does mean that when we pray, we say, your will be done. It means that we are to trust that God knows best, no matter how he answers our prayers, even if we can't see how or why. Is there an area of your life where you're living by sight and not by faith? Let's hear God's warning not to substitute him out for things that we can see. Okay, so that's the first ugly truth. The second ugly truth is that just like Israel wanted to be like all the other nations, we don't want to be different for God's sake. We don't want to be different for God's sake. Israel felt out of touch with the world around them. This is the Iron Age. If we're going to keep up with the times, then we're going to need a king. Israel couldn't change the fact that they were different. They were God's treasured possession, a holy nation, and yet they still did all they could to look like the world around them. They just wanted to channel their inner chameleon and blend in with everybody else. How often do we find ourselves in the same boat? So often we would prefer to stay in step with our culture and just go along with the rest of society. We'd rather do that than stick our heads above the parapet and stand out for God. But just like Israel, we need to remember that God calls us to be holy as he is holy. God calls us to believe that his way is best. 
And that will mean that we need to embrace the fact that we're going to stand out from the world around us. And again, that literally has a world of implications for our lives, doesn't it? It's going to mean that our definition of success is going to look very different to the world's definition of success. It's going to mean that we don't go along with the zeitgeist of our culture, even if it means we're ridiculed or cancelled because of our beliefs. It's going to mean that our speech in the office is always full of grace, that we always have an answer for the hope that we have. As a church, it's going to mean that we keep making sure we don't dilute the gospel to something more easy to swallow. It's going to mean that we keep making sure that our praise doesn't start to look like entertainment trying to attract a crowd. What does it mean for you? Are there areas in your life where you're prone to being a chameleon? Is there an area of your life where God is calling you to stand up and show that he is your king. During the week, I read a tweet that a pastor uh, back home had written. He tweeted something a young woman who was going through a hard time said in his small group. She said, I just want to make the decision that displays my discipleship to Jesus the most. And I think that's a really helpful attitude, isn't it? In our lives, let's make decisions that display our discipleship to Jesus the most. Let's choose to conduct ourselves in a way that best shows our allegiance to our King. That's not always going to be easy, but God promises that he's with us. Let's ask that by his Holy Spirit, he would give us the courage and the confidence that we need to live for him. The final ugly truth that we learn about ourselves in this passage is that just like Israel ignored the word of God that came to them through Samuel, we don't want to listen to God's word. We don't want to listen to God's word. Israel had God's word. They had his wisdom, but they didn't want to submit to it. They already had their minds made up about what they wanted to do. They didn't want to listen to what God had to say. They thought their way was best. My little boy, Seth, often does things he's not supposed to do. And often, while he's jumping on the sofa or throwing food, he says, no, no, no. So he obviously knows he shouldn't do it because we've told him. But that hasn't translated into obedience just yet. He has the information, but we're still waiting on the transformation. And our hearts are the same. Now, don't get me wrong, we all need to be immersed in God's words. God graciously uses his word to transform our hearts. But it is possible to read the Bible in the wrong way. Because the reality is that information is not enough to change the human heart. Any one of us could completely master the content of the Bible. We could understand the context of every one of Paul's letters. We could understand the big idea of every chapter in the Bible. We could come up with great answers in our Bible studies and still remain completely unchanged, unmoved. What we need is to cry out to God for his Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts. We need to ask that God would be at work as we read his word so that it moves from information to transformation. 
We need to pray that we would not just merely master the content of the Bible, but that we would be mastered by the almighty God who reveals himself in the Bible. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would cultivate a genuine love for God in our hearts, that he would empower us to show our allegiance and loyalty to our King by obeying what his word says. So let's not allow the Bible uh, to become an academic exercise. Let's come to God's word with humble, open hearts that are ready to be changed and ask that God would transform us. So there's the three ugly truths that we learn about ourselves in this passage. Looking in the mirror isn't easy, is it? We all have areas in our lives where we think our way is best and reject God as our king. We all have idols that take God's place. And we do need to repent of that and ask for God to change our hearts. But in the light of Christ, God never wants us to just beat ourselves up about our sin. Before we look at ourselves too long, before we get weighed down in guilt and despair, this passage has more to say to us than just how ugly our hearts are. There's another reason why God gave the people of Israel what they wanted. Another reason why he allowed them to have a king. God is unfolding a mystery that will ultimately lead to a much greater king. In chapter 9, Saul is anointed as the first king of Israel. Saul will make way to David, and from the line of David will come a much greater king, King Jesus. Our final point of application is that only King Jesus is worth trusting in. Only King Jesus is worth trusting in. This passage has so much to teach us about King Jesus. It reminds us that Jesus is the only king worth trusting in because he is not like any other king. In John 18, Pilate asked Jesus if he is the king of the Jews. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. In effect, he's saying, I am not a king like all the other nations have. King Jesus is far greater than the type of king that the elders of Israel want in 1 Samuel 8. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his being. The fullness of God dwells in him. All things have been created through him and for him. All things are being sustained right now by his powerful word. He is no ordinary king like the other nations have. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing King of the universe. But more than that, King Jesus is the only King worth trusting in. Because he is not like human kings who take the best for themselves. Jesus is a King who gives. He is a King who gives the best. He, give, he gave his perfect life for us. Just like God allows himself to be rejected in 1 Samuel 8, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. In his sovereignty, God allowed the Jews to reject Jesus as their king. 
And they handed him over to the Romans to be crucified on a cross. Jesus gave his life on the cross to deliver us from slavery and bondage to sin. He died so that we don't have to reject him as our king anymore. So that we don't have to go after our idols anymore. Human kings will enslave us. But King Jesus offers true freedom. We are freed from sin and now we are able to follow and serve him. And more than that, we're free from the penalty of sin. The only thing that Jesus does take from us is the very thing we don't want. He takes the worst, the biggest threat to our security. He takes the punishment that we deserve for rejecting God as our king away from us and he bears it himself. What a reversal from the king portrayed in 1 Samuel 8 and all the idols that we trust in. All they want to do is take what is yours for themselves. Jesus takes your worst and he makes it his so that what is his could become yours. He died so that his righteousness could be your righteousness. He died so that we could receive eternal life and a share of his inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is a king like no other. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, maybe this passage has confronted you with the ugly truth of your rebellious heart for the first time. You need to hear that Jesus wants to be your king. There is a royal invitation with your name on it. All he asks is that you believe in him, you trust in what he did for you on the cross, that you say sorry for rejecting him as your king and you turn and follow him. Don't leave here tonight without getting right with God. Put your trust in King Jesus. Or maybe you are a Christian, and if you're honest, you know there are areas in your life where it's not obvious that Jesus is your king. You know that there are some idols in your life that need to be dethroned. Let's not wallow in self-pity or guilt. But let's heed this gracious warning in 1 Samuel 8. And let God's word bring us before the Lord again in repentance. Remembering that a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. Remembering that he is greater than our hearts. Remembering that he has taken the punishment for our rebellion upon himself. That he's ready to forgive us and give us the grace and strength we need to walk in his ways. And let's remember once again that the only king worth trusting in is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. Thank you that it shows us how we really are. Lord, we're sorry that so often we want to live by sight and not by faith. So often we don't want to stand out for you or listen to what your word says. Lord, please forgive us. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to trust in King Jesus alone. Lord, would you transform us by your Holy Spirit Lord, give us hearts that want to follow and serve you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, we're going to close by singing, It Was Finished on That Cross. This will probably be a new song to many of you. Uh, We're going to stand, uh, but the band are going to sing it through once for us, uh, and then we'll join in. Let's stand as the musicians lead us.